Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B39, Exedium According to legend, he'd been born in a temple to Alexander the Great, which his mother and father were visiting on the feast day of Alexander, held on the anniversary of Alexander's death. Unsurprisingly, when it came time to pick a name, his parents chose Alexander, or, more precisely, Marcus Julius Gessius Bassianus Alexianus. The story starts to unravel a bit when you realize Alexander the Great died in June and Severus Alexander was born in October. But whatever the reason, it's hard to criticize parents for picking an auspicious name, even if it came with some pretty big expectations. Alexander the Great fought his first battle at the age of 16 and had conquered the world by 30. By contrast, Severus Alexander started ruling the world at age 13, but a decade later had yet to fight his first battle. But that luxury was coming to an end. Ardashir was pillaging and looting across Mesopotamia, and raiding into Syria and even Cappadocia. Persian forces were laying siege to Roman garrisons along the Euphrates. Their goal didn't seem to be conquering and holding, at least not yet, but rather degrading Roman defenses and, most importantly, provoking a response. And, as Herodian puts it, though the undertaking distressed him and was contrary to his inclinations, Alexander channeled a little Marcus Aurelius and let duty be his guide. His first goal was to try to assemble an army at least comparable to that of Ardashir. And oh, what a sign of the times it was that the task was an actual struggle. As Herodian puts it, the effort caused the greatest upheaval throughout the Roman world. But eventually the legions assembled in Rome and soon set off for the east. The first time Alexander crossed Anatolia, he was only five years old, traveling with the court of Caracalla and Julia Domna. Four years later, he'd gone back west, with the restored Severan court of his cousin Elagabalus. Since then, as far as we know, he'd never left the capital, certainly never at the head of an army so he likely brought most of the palace along with him to help him feel more at home. 
His mother, Mamaya, was obviously at his side, as were the many advisors who steered Roman policy. And from somewhere in the mix, it was decided to send a second embassy to Ardashir. This one carried a proposal of Roman peace and friendship, paired with the implied threat of the legions coming east. Ardashir's response was to order the Romans to withdraw from all of Asia. Needless to say, there wasn't an excess of middle ground. And, to make matters worse, Alexander was faced with major revolts by legions from Syria and Egypt. The Syrian troops even tried to elevate a new emperor, since, you know, things had worked out so great the last time. Alexander quickly put down the rebellions and reassigned some legions to frontier defense. The Historia Augusta commends Alexander for his matchless fortitude in the face of the soldiers' insolence. But practically, the reshuffle meant fewer troops for the coming Roman campaign. After reaching Edessa, or possibly Nisibus, Alexander's advisors agreed on a war plan. And I've posted a map showing the plan up on the Ancient World website. Harkening back to the campaigns of Lucius Verus, they'd split the army into three parts, each aimed at a different enemy target. One part would pass through Armenia, descend into Media, and menace the northern capital of Ecbatana. This implied a certain level of regional cooperation, but Tiridates II was apparently on board. Like the Atreni, the Armenians now feared Ardashir's Persia much more than Alexander's Rome. The second part of the army would sail down the Euphrates and invade Cherasina, now the Sassanid province of Maison, then advance on Tessaphon or possibly Fars. The third part, the largest part, was to be commanded by Alexander and aimed at what Herodian calls the Central Sector. This likely meant crossing the Tigris, moving through Adiabene, then marching on Ecbatana or Tessaphon, whichever one would do the Persians the most damage. While the three armies' approach had offensive advantages, it was also at least partly a defensive move. The last time a Roman army crossed the Euphrates, back in 217 AD, it had been nearly wiped out by the Parthian king Artabanus, the same Artabanus who'd been handily defeated by their new archenemy Ardashir. All things considered, it probably made sense not to put the whole Roman army into one basket. In the spring of 233 AD, the Romans began their invasion. After a difficult passage through the Armenian mountains, the northern army entered Media, and soon began burning and plundering local villages. Ardashir brought his army north, but, according to Herodian, had little success in his efforts to halt the Roman advance. When word reached him of a second Roman army moving through Mysan, Ardashir led the bulk of his forces south, leaving just enough troops behind to safeguard Media. In short, the Roman plan was working pretty well. 
All that was needed was for the main army, Alexander's army, to cross the Tigris, join the northern army, and drive hard south toward Tessaphon. With luck, they'd catch Ardashir in a pincer movement, and maybe even force his surrender. Worst case, it'd drive the Sassanids back to Fars, and damage their credibility as would-be Parthian successors. Either way, Alexander'd be echoing the deeds of Trajan, his own great-uncle Septimius Severus, and maybe even his legendary namesake. Now, as I mentioned, the comparison between the two Alexanders breaks down in a few key areas. While Alexander the Great versus Darius III was a pretty clear case of West versus East, Severus Alexander and Ardashir had more in common. Not only did both their families hail from the East, Syria and Fars respectively, but they were also both descendants of Eastern high priests, those of Elagabal and Anahida. Though it's also worth mentioning that both now waged war in the name of different gods, Jupiter and Ahura Mazda. But okay, I've been teasing the battle for two episodes now, and what you really want to know is what happened next. And you know what? We have exactly zero idea. Actually, that's not quite true. What we have is two vastly different takes. And I don't mean a Roman take and a Sassanid take. I mean two very different Roman takes. And usually when I say that, I'm talking about Herodian and Cassius Dio. But Cassius Dio died shortly before the campaign, so we're left at the mercy of less reliable sources. According to the Historia Augusta, Alexander commanded from the flanks urged on the soldiers, performed many brave deeds with his own hand, and by his words encouraged individual soldiers to praiseworthy actions. At last he routed and put to flight the great king Ardashir, who had come to the war with 700 elephants, 1,800 scythe chariots, and many thousand horsemen. After this, returning to Rome, he conducted a most splendid triumph. Similar reports appear in other sources, and contemporary coins show Alexander victorious over the river gods Euphrates and Tigris. But the fact that the coins don't use the title Persicus Maximus at least hint that things may not have gone so swimmingly. In an odd departure, the Historia Augusta takes time to discount an alternate version. It is also stated that Alexander lost his army through hunger, cold, and disease. And this is the version given by Herodian, but contrary to the beliefs of the majority. And yes, indeed, our friend Herodian spins a very different tale. Though he commanded the largest of the three Roman armies, Herodian reports that Alexander failed them. He did not bring the army or come himself into barbarian territory, either because he was afraid to risk his life for the Roman Empire, or because his mother's feminine fears or excessive motherly love restrained him. 
It was this reluctance of his which led to the destruction of the advancing Roman army. Without Alexander's support, the southern force near Carcmason was encircled by the Sassanids. According to Herodian, all the Romans were driven to one spot, where they made a wall of their shields and fought like an army under siege. Hit and wounded from every side, they held out bravely as long as they could, but in the end all were killed. In Herodian's version, Alexander then ordered the northern army to retreat through Armenia. But by now it was winter, and the troops encountered similar conditions to those that had ravaged Mark Antony's army way back in episode B1. Out of the thousands of soldiers who began the retreat, only a handful survived to reach Antioch. As Herodian summarizes, of the three armies into which Alexander had divided his total force, the greater part was lost by various misfortunes, disease, war, and cold. According to Herodian, the only reason the loss wasn't more complete was that Ardashird halted his campaign. One of the more unintentionally ironic parts of Herodian's narrative is how his description of Sassanid forces evokes the iconic farmer-soldiers of the early Republic. The barbarians, it may be noted, do not hire mercenary soldiers as the Romans do nor do they maintain trained standing armies. Rather, all the available men, and sometimes the women too, mobilize at the king's order. At the end of the war, each man returns to his regular occupation, taking as his pay whatever falls to his lot from the general booty. Moreover, the Persians are reluctant to leave their wives, children, and homeland. Wow, those Persians sound like a real bunch of weirdos. Whether victor or vanquished, Ardashird lost a substantial number of troops, and a decided a longer-term strategy was needed to capture Rome's eastern possessions. One critical element was fostering a successor, and with the gift of hindsight, we can safely say he knocked that one out of the park. The early life of Prince Shapur is mostly historical guesswork. If he is the figure behind his father and the relief from Nakshi Rustam, the latest he could have been born is 215. That'd make him around 11 years old at Ardashir's coronation and around 18 by 233 AD. It's highly likely he'd fought in the recent campaign against Rome gaining experience for what had soon become a lifelong career of conquest. Ardashir himself wasn't all that old, possibly only in his mid-forties, but a life of constant warfare was taking its toll. Over the next few years, he'd increasingly share his powers and responsibilities with his son. By the time of his death, in 242, the transition would be a smooth one. But back to the main question, was the recent war a triumph or a disaster for Rome? Since the primary sources are irreconcilable, modern scholars tend to split the difference. In the words of historians Dignus and Winter, 
it is neither possible to talk about a splendid Sassanid victory, nor to view the Roman emperor as triumphant over the Persians. It rather looks as if each side withdrew their armies, and thereby ended the First Roman-Sassanian War, because both sides had suffered considerable losses. So, basically, it was a stalemate, similar to that achieved by Macrinus against Artabanus, only without the massive Roman bribe and possible loss of territory. And, similar to that situation, while the emperor trumpeted victory to the senate and people of Rome, the troops in the field likely knew a darker truth. And it's very possible that knowledge and experience fed directly into what came next. By 234, one way or the other, Alexander was back in Antioch. He planned to let his troops recover and let himself wind down, from whatever it was he'd done or hadn't done. He expected to have plenty of warning before the Persians remustered their army, enough time to negotiate a lasting peace or prepare a second campaign. But in the meantime, his focus on the east had left other frontiers a bit threadbare. And, soon enough, Alexander was confronted with his second military crisis. As Herodian relates, The governors of Illyria reported that the Germans had crossed the Rhine and the Danube rivers, were plundering the Roman Empire, and, with a huge force, were overrunning the garrison camps on the banks of these rivers, as well as the cities and villages there. Now, if you're an Illyrian soldier serving in the east, this is pretty upsetting news. Because not only did your commander-in-chief maybe just screw the pooch in Syria, but now your family and friends were defenseless and being slaughtered back at home. The legions began clamoring for a return to the west, and of course they were far from alone. Illyricum was close to the capital which meant the Roman Senate and Western governors were also screaming for more troops. But having avoided getting killed, and maybe even fighting in the east, Alexander was reluctant to throw himself into a fresh military conflict, one that might prove even more dangerous and more intractable. Unsurprisingly, his hesitation only led to greater outrage and more urgent calls for his return. Sometime later in 234, Alexander finally caved in. He arranged the east as best he could, then led Roman forces west out of Antioch. With him, according to Herodian, were a huge force of archers from the east and from the Osroenian country, together with Parthian deserters and mercenaries who had offered their help. With these, he prepared to battle the Germans. While the Osroene auxiliaries aren't too surprising, the Parthians and mercenaries are an interesting touch. We noted last episode that Alexander's strategy for managing the military included dismissing mutinous legions, which might have had a serious impact on available Roman forces. And even if he'd come away with a stalemate, his recent campaign hadn't won any plunder, 
making it difficult to attract new recruits. All of which meant that the Roman army may have effectively been running on fumes. And while the use of mercenary troops may have seemed like a reasonable stopgap, it would not serve the empire well in years to come. Alexander soon encamped on the Rhine and began preparations for a northern campaign. But, just like with the Persians, he started things off by trying to negotiate a peaceful settlement. According to Herodian, he promised to give the Germans everything they asked, and to hand over a large amount of money. Consequently, Alexander undertook to buy a truce rather than risk the hazards of war. Now, again, if you're a soldier from the region, the Germans have basically spent the last year raiding, pillaging, and ransacking your backyard. And your only real means of recouping your losses is to raid, pillage, and ransack their territory right back. Except your emperor apparently has zero interest in either getting you revenge or getting you paid. Which, and I'm sorry, but how are you an improvement over Elagabalus or even Macrinus? I have to admit to a bit of confusion on the role of Julia Mamaya. Since the death of her mother, Mamaya had had full control over the vast Severan fortune. It's likely she'd made sure the Praetorian stayed happy, and for a decade or so back in Rome, that approach had mostly worked. But when the arena shifted outside of Rome, Mamaya's lack of experience, or lack of judgment, appears to have let her down. Because in Syria, and now on the Rhine, her son's security wasn't only dependent on the goodwill of the Praetorians. It was also in the hands of rough common soldiers, who valued martial courage as much as Severan gold. In March of 235 AD, Alexander and Mamaya got some fairly disturbing news. A hulking drill sergeant named Maximinus Thrax had used legionary discontent to get himself hailed as Roman Emperor. Not only that, but he was camped nearby, had gathered a large force, and was already marching on Alexander's headquarters. Alexander and Mamaya immediately panicked and tried to rally their bodyguard. But once they saw the approaching army, the soldiers turned their rage on Alexander. According to Herodian, they condemned the emperor's greedy mother for cutting off their money, and Alexander for his pettiness and stinginess. And soon enough, they abandoned the Severans and joined up with Maximinus Thrax. Herodian records the tragic endgame. Trembling with fear, Alexander was scarcely able to retire to his quarters. Clinging to his mother and complaining and lamenting that she was to blame for his death, he awaited his executioner. After being saluted as emperor by the entire army, Maximinus sent a tribune and several centurions to kill Alexander and his mother. When these men came to the emperor's quarters, they rushed in and killed him with his mother. 
Quickly, brutally, and with zero foresight, the Severan regime was ended. The dynasty lasted some 42 years, or 139 years if you indulge Septimius Severus and link them to the Antonines. At the time of his death, Alexander was 26 and had ruled the empire for half his life. His defining traits, compassion, prudence, and a willingness to negotiate, had served him well for a decade in Rome, but proved little use on campaign. He was a 10th generation descendant of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and the fourth and final to serve as Roman emperor. His mother, Julia Mamaya, was 45, the last of the line of powerful Severan women, or at least the last one to make the history books. Her fierce dedication had made her son a capable peacetime emperor, but in Rome at least, that'd always be only part of the equation. Whatever the Severans' virtues and failings, what followed was clearly much worse. The imperial crisis, the military anarchy, or, more conventionally, the crisis of the 3rd century. Dozens of claimants would rise and fall, while the empire succumbed to invasion and plague. But where some saw crisis, others saw opportunity. And, while Alexander was the last heir of Antony and Cleopatra to rule, it turns out he wouldn't be the last one to try. Mm -hmm.